Our reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 41. You can find the passage in your bulletin, or you can look up in your Bible or on your apps. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is, that, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own, own tongue the mighty works of God. And they all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servant and female servant, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the, of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. 
My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Phew. Hey, Kathy. Whew. Man, oh man. Thank you. That's a tough one. That's a long one. Uh, before we get started, just I did forget to mention one thing. Um, there is a new members class this coming Saturday. For anybody who's interested in knowing more about Grace Valley, uh, what membership looks like in Grace Valley, this is the place to find out. Uh, you can email Megan, office at gracevalleychurch.ca to sign up. We usually go from 9.30 to 3 or so. Obviously, there is no obligation to buy if you attend this class, but if you are wondering about Grace Valley and what it's all about, this is certainly the place to find out. Okay. So they were a small group of people. There was 120 men or so, and obviously there would be women there as well, so this is probably a group that's no larger than 300 people. Uh, bigger maybe than this group here, but not much bigger. And they had been tasked with an impossible mission. Jesus had told their leadership team, we can call them, the apostles, that they were supposed to be witnesses to his life, death, and resurrection uh, to the city of Jerusalem, where they were from, to Judea, sort of their, their province, the area that they're from and are familiar with, to Samaria, which is outside their comfort zone, but uh, 
but at least uh, an area that they knew something about, and then to the ends of the earth, which they didn't even know where that was. They didn't have maps and globes like we do, so the idea of having a mission that would send them to the ends of the earth was absolutely terrifying and overwhelming. How on earth were they going to accomplish this task? Well, thankfully, their leader, Jesus, had said to them, don't go yet. You can't accomplish this task as you are. You need help. And I'm going to give you help. I am going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he will come upon you in power and he will give you what you need to accomplish this unbelievable mission that I'm setting before you. And what we just read in Acts chapter 2 is that Jesus did fulfill that promise. The Holy Spirit came down on this group of people in a room like this and uh, this massive flame fire was seen and it started separating into small tongues of flame and I don't know what it must have been like for these people. There's this rushing wind in the room. They're seeing these tongues of flame and then all of a sudden those tongues of flame come after them. I can imagine people backing up and trying to move and this thing just keeps going towards them and eventually it rests upon them and they look around and it's resting upon everybody else in the room as well and then they open their mouths and they start speaking and some of them start speaking in languages that they maybe themselves don't even recognize. They spill out into the street and they all start proclaiming this good news about Jesus coming to live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died to this crowd, some of whom heard them in their own languages. It was a remarkable event. It was, in fact, actually an unrepeated event. You don't see this happen again in this way anywhere in the New Testament or, or down through church history. It was unique. Pentecost was unique. And yet... Even though this event was unique, not every aspect of what happened that day was unique. In fact, there are blessings or consequences or implications of Pentecost that have reverberated throughout the rest of history down to today. Uh, A great theologian, Dutch theologian uh, by the name of Abraham Kuyper, he described it this way. He says, you know, Pentecost is like a city for the first time getting a um, centralized water system and so all the houses in the city are hooked up to this water system and then you know the mayor or some dignitary turns on the water system right you know goes and water rushes to all the houses and now you've got uh you've got internal plumbing and water in your house that's pentecost but he says every time a person comes to faith in jesus christ it's like a new house being hooked up to the water system that same power, that same, that same glorious experience of the power of God at work in your life, empowering you for the mission of God in the world that everybody else has experienced, you experience as well as a new believer in Jesus. Now, we started this series on Acts. Um, oh, Yeah, last week, like a week ago. Uh, Sorry, brain freeze there. You know how computer glitches? My brain glitched there. Uh, Last week we started the series, and and the question that we were asking initially was, um, how on earth did this message 
that was believed by a very small group of peasants and slaves and, and uninfluential people. How on earth did it explode and grow as a worldwide religion so that today, 2,000 years later, it's the largest religion in the world. It is the farthest spread religion in the world, meaning there are more places in the world where people confess Jesus Christ as Lord than any other religion. How on earth did that happen? And, and does the things that happened then still happen today? Are they still relevant for us today? And what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes is we're going to look at Peter's sermon to answer that question. We're not going to spend our time on the first few verses uh, and, and all the wild uh, experiences that the first uh, Christians experienced when the Holy Spirit came down. We're going to look at, at Peter's sermon. And the reason is, is because the answer to that question, how on earth did this message continue to spread around the world? The answer to that question is surprising. The reason is preaching this good news. After the Holy Spirit came down, what did these first uh, believers do? They went out and they preached, they proclaimed, they heralded this news that Jesus had come into the world and that he had defeated death and condemnation by his death on the cross, and he had overcome death through his resurrection from the dead, and that he was now reigning and ruling over this universe. And you see, it's not that they preached in languages that were, were varied, or var sorry, varied languages that caused it to spread, it's what they said. It was the message itself that caused it to spread. And what they said was shocking. And it was shocking then, and it's shocking today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at four things. You have a, a little outline in the back of your, uh, your um, bulletin that explains how the gospel spread. It meets us where we are. It tells us the truth about ourselves. It requires a response, and it offers hope. Now, before we jump in, I want to say very, very quickly to you this. Keep this in mind. When we start, it's going to sound really good. You're going to like it. But then we're going to go into a valley. And point two and point three are going to upset you. And some of you are not just going to be upset by it, you're going to be angered. But I'm asking you to stay. Don't walk out. Don't turn your heart off or sorry, turn your brain off or close your heart because point four gets really good again. But you have to go, we start here, we're going here, and then we're coming back here. You have to go here to get here. Do you get what I'm saying? I have spent most of this week afraid of preaching this sermon. I'll be honest with you. I'm afraid I'll say some things wrong. And I'll say, I'm afraid I'll say some things that upset or terrify some of you, particularly those of you who maybe are not convinced of the Christian faith. You may find this very, very disturbing. I'm just laying it out right now. Uh, I figure if I warn you ahead of time, you get an opportunity to brace yourself, prepare yourself. We're going to go up. We're starting up. We're going down, Lord willing. If you stick with it, we'll go up again, okay? So here we go. The gospel spread, first of all, because... It meets us where we are. In verses 14 and 15, that's the funny beginning, right? Everybody likes the funny beginning of the, of the sermon. Peter stands up, 
with the eleven, he lifts up his voice and he addresses them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. That's what he's saying. It's too early for them to be drunk. They think they're drunk. The crowd thinks the apostles are drunk. Why does the crowd think the apostles are drunk? When I was a kid, I thought, well, it was because they were speaking in tongues and, and, and um, they were saying what sounded like gibberish, but that's not what the text says. The text says people understood them. It would be like me all of a sudden going, Sprechen Sie Deutsch, and I don't speak German. That's the extent of the German I speak. And someone going, oh, I hear German because I know German. So it was intelligible speech. It wasn't the fact that they were speaking in these remarkable tongues that had people going, oh, they must be drunk. You know why they thought they were drunk? Because they were bold. It was because of their boldness. And if you think about it, it makes sense. What, what happens when people drink too much? They lose their inhibitions, right? All of a sudden, their tongue gets a little loose. That's why fights break out, because people's inhibitions are gone, and they start saying things that maybe they shouldn't say, and uh, their self-control sort of gets, uh, or self-regard, or, or, or their fear of uh, looking foolish in front of others or whatever, all that starts to diminish when you've had too much to drink. And these guys were preaching boldly, declaring this Jesus whom they had crucified as resurrected and as Lord of all. And so people were like, they must be drunk. Remember Peter? He denied Jesus three times, twice to some little servant girl who's like, hey, didn't I see you with Jesus before? And this little, shut up kid, I didn't know him, you know. He was terrified by this little girl trying to identify him with Jesus. Now, here he is standing up in front of this whole crowd, and he preaches this incredible sermon that has a lot of pretty tough things in it, and that's why I said, be, uh, prepare yourself. They were bold, and that's why people thought they were drunk, but my point is actually not that. My point is, where did they do this? They did this to a crowd, or, or they preached this, this way to a crowd at Pentecost. Now, what this was, was after... Uh, about, you know, after Passover, 40 or 50 days later, um, the wheat harvest would come in. Jews were farmers. This was an agrarian society, a farming society. And so the wheat harvest would come in. And once the wheat harvest was done, then about 10 days later or so, they would uh, sow, oh, sorry, barley harvest would come in. It was barley that came in. About 10 days later, they would go out and sow the wheat crop and get ready for the next cycle, which was growing wheat. And in between, they had a party. It was like a religious Mardi Gras, okay? And so Jews from all over the place were congregating in Jerusalem to have this great party and celebration, and it was going to be awesome and fun and exciting because, you know, things are good when you get a job done and the season is over, you're feeling kind of good, and yet they run into Jesus, they didn't expect to meet Jesus here. They didn't expect to hear this gospel here. And yet, Jesus met them exactly where they are. He met them, and this is the principle. Jesus meets us, even physically, in some of the most unlikely places. In some of the most unlikely places. For example, I read a story, and it's a little bit gross, I admit, but it's amazing. 
I read a story of a man who, during the, the Manchurian War, you know, before World War II had broken out, there was a war between Japan and China, and the Japanese invaded China, and they took over uh, Manchuria, and they arrested a whole bunch of people and put them in prison camps. And there was a Chinese prisoner who was tasked with cleaning the latrines. Now, they didn't have running water in these latrines and stuff. And one of the Japanese guards who, who uh, had received a Bible was very, very anti-religious. And he had decided to use pages from that Bible as toilet paper. And this Chinese man, whose job it was to clean the latrines, he actually took these used pages from the Bible and cleaned them off and began reading the Bible and was converted through that. Unbelievable. It doesn't happen all the time, but you talk to Muslim converts to Christianity. And it's, it's uncanny how many stories Muslim converts to Christianity, particularly in parts of the world where they don't have access to the Bible or to gospel teaching very easily, a major part of their journey to coming to faith is a dream or a vision where they meet Jesus. And I don't, honestly, I don't know what to make of it because it's not my experience. But Jesus will meet people where they are like he met these people where they are. And even he does it physically, but more importantly, he does it spiritually. In other words, each and every one of us is in a different place spiritually. But Jesus meets you where you are. You heard last week, Ashley, as she uh, gave her testimony, she told the story of how she grew up in a Christian home, how she had been taught the Bible from a very young age, how she had all the privileges of, of being raised in that context, and yet she, you know, she was the kid that you wanted your kid to be friends with. That's what she said. I was a good kid. And yet she said, Jesus had to meet me where I was spiritually. And how did he do it? He did it as she read through stories of these kids having tremendous stories of, of, of hardship and uh, uh, living a life of, life of sin and then experiencing God's grace and forgiveness. And she said, my experience was nothing like theirs and yet Jesus met me and I had this overwhelming sense that I, I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. See, here's what's amazing about the gospel. You do not need to clean yourself up, get your act together, figure your stuff out before you can meet Jesus. He meets everyone exactly where they're at. You read the gospels and you see Jesus meeting prostitutes and loving them. And he goes from that to meeting very highly moral religious leaders and loving them. Because Christianity is a religion of grace, you see. It's a gift. You don't need to prepare yourself to receive a gift. You just hold out your hands and he gives it to you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Okay, hold on to that feeling because here we go. Yeah, the gospel meets us where we are, but here's the thing. When it does, the gospel tells us the truth about ourselves. If you look in verse 26, Jesus or Peter says this in verse, uh, sorry, verse 23. He says, 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. You you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's verse 23. Then in verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Twice, twice, Peter says, you killed Jesus. Now, think about this. This is a huge crowd. It says at the end of the passage, some 3,000 people were converted. Obviously, not everybody was converted. Let's, let's say this was a super-duper awesome experience, and so around 60% were converted, let's say. So let's say there was a crowd of 5,000 people there. Peter says to 5,000 peeper, peeper, peeps, you crucified Jesus. Now, obviously, they didn't, some of them weren't even in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. So he holds them responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. He's holding all of them personally, you see, responsible for the death of Jesus. In fact, the Bible, if you read it consistently, it holds all humanity, every single one of us. 2,000 years later, personally responsible for the, cruci- the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's because it's the truth. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, not some have sinned, not most of us have sinned, but every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now listen, some of us know that about ourselves, and we know it very quickly because in His grace, God has allowed us to sin very, very spectacularly. And so we've got the, we've got the evidence to prove it. It's very clear and obvious. We've got criminal records. We've got dis- ruined relationships. It's obvious to us and to everyone else that we have sinned. We have, we have broken God's will. We have broken faith with him. We have turned our back on him. It's very, very obvious. But for most of us, it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot less obvious because we deal with things like discontentment or worry or what you could generally call worldliness or greed or jealousy, or lack of self-control, and we think, well, these aren't really that big a deal. I, you know, maybe I struggle with these things, or maybe I don't even recognize them as things, but here's the thing. The Bible says, whether it's spectacular or whether it's subtle, they all come from the same root. All sins come from the same root. Romans chapter 1 says, basically, it all comes from selves that are centered on me. Our problem, you see, if you look at Romans 1, is that we prefer the creation to the creator. So we like his stuff, and we want his stuff more than we like or want him. Or... Romans 1 also says, you know, we, we think we're smarter than God. We would never say this out loud. We're not dumb enough to go, I know what I'm talking about. What does God know? We're not foolish enough to do that. But we live as though we are smarter than God. 
because he tells us how we ought to live. He gives us direction in how to live our lives. And what do we do? We look at those things and we say, well, I'm going to try to find a way around that. I'm going to ignore it or maybe I'm just going to justify myself, myself. I don't know how many times I've talked to people who have chosen a path that is outside, obviously outside of, of God's will. And they say, but God, God just wants me to be happy. He doesn't want, doesn't God want us to be happy? And I know that as I do this, as I take this path, I find that I am happy and therefore God must bless that. And I want to say to them, and sometimes I have, but most of the time I'm too chicken. I want to say, can you please show me where in the Bible it says God just wants you to be happy? I was reading a blog from a, a, a missionary, no, a woman who's friends with a lot of missionaries this week. <laughs> and she pointed out, you know, this idea of saying, well, God wants me to be happy. That is such a Western idea. That is a modern Western idea, not a biblical idea. And, and she put it this way. She said, if God just wants me to be happy, what do I say to people in Mozambique who had their entire house destroyed by a cyclone and then two weeks later just had it leveled again by another one? Tell me God just wants you to be happy. Or what do you say to Christians in Sri Lanka who got up one morning and went to church like normal and then after, after, church, or, or after uh, a few hours later, there are men with, there was one man anyway, who uh, lost his wife and three kids because of the bombings that they suffered in, Sri Lanka, in these Sri Lankan churches. And God, but God just wants you to be happy. We use this phrase, God wants me to be happy. Let's face it, we use it as an excuse. We use it as an excuse to pursue the desires of our hearts because when we've locked onto something and we want something, we will move heaven and earth. We will convince ourselves. We will do everything in our power to convince ourselves that what we want is a good thing. But the truth is, we're sinners who have screwed up royally who has caused the death of Jesus Christ by our sinful rebellion because that's what he had to do to set things right. In order for him to reconcile us to our creator, he had to die and it was our fault. But here's the thing. This is actually wonderful that God would do this, that God would, would tell us, that Jesus and the gospel would tell us the truth about ourselves is actually a wonderful freeing thing because if, if you are honest about your tendency, if I am honest about my heart's tendency... I don't want to serve my wife. I don't want to serve my kids. I don't want to care for others. I want to look out for me. Let me give you this, a, a very simple example of this. We're supposed to go serve with Stewards of Coots Paradise this afternoon. I'll be totally honest with you. My initial natural heart's reaction is, I don't want to. And I have more excuses than you, okay? I'm working this morning. I want to rest. It's really nice out. Finally, God is giving us spring. I want to sit in my backyard and feel the sun on my face and read my book and chillax. Even though I won't really do anything better with those two hours, that's not the point. The point is I want to do what I want to do. 
That is my natural inclination to take care of me, to think, well, and that's what you do. You start to justify. Say, well, I worked today, and I had a busy week, and, you know, I do this kind of stuff for my job, so why would I want to do this on Sunday? I mean, there's a million ways to justify there, our, our, our desires not to do the things that God calls us to do. We had previous plans. We don't get to see other people unless it's Sunday afternoon, and so, you know, we... We, you know, we got to have family time. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I know them all because I use them all. I work really, really hard at it. And God comes in and he says, that's not what your life is. Or this is what your life is. You're not fine. You're selfish, Paul. And what I love about that is that he helps me understand the mess that is my own heart. God is a straight shooter, and you can trust him. Look, everybody in this room knows that they're not the ex that they should be. You're not the friend you should be. You're not the kid you should be. You're not the parent you should be. You're not the worker you should be. You're not the citizen you should be. And you don't need a God to come along and tell you, no, 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 really, you're actually good. You're okay. You're doing fine. It's because it doesn't resonate with the truth of your heart. And if he does tell you you're fine and it's okay and don't worry about it, then what do you do with your anxiety? What do you do with your anger? What do you do with your lust? What do you do with your discontentment? What do you do with it? Do you just look at it and say it's fine? When deep down inside you know it's not? It actually leads you to hopelessness. Hope is found in God saying to you and to me, saying, you're in trouble, son. You're in trouble, daughter. But I'm here to do something about it. Well, what does that lead to? Point three, we're still in the valley, by the way. This is tough, okay, because point three is the gospel requires a response. If you look at verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now listen carefully. Every time you hear the gospel, it requires a response. Every time the gospel is preached, it requires a response. The Puritans used to put it this way. They used to say that the same sun softens wax and hardens clay. And every time the gospel is preached, it's like the sun shining. And when it, when it meets a soft heart, it continues to soften that heart. But when it meets a hard heart, what it will do is, is it will actually harden that heart. And so what, what, what I'm trying to express to you is this. You will either react one way or the other way when you hear the gospel. You will either be softened or you will be hardened. Every single time, every single time you come to church, every single time you hear it proclaimed on, a, on the radio, every time you encounter it in the Bible, you will either be convicted and softened or you will be hardened. And that's a terrifying thing. When you hear the Bible, when you hear the gospel tell you the truth about yourself, do you say to yourself, whoa, I, I, better, I, 
better think about this. I better, I better wrestle with this. I better struggle with this. I better deal with this. Or maybe do you, do you even go so far as these people and say, what must I do to be saved? That's softening, you see. But if you hear it and you just go, interesting or how many more minutes do I have to endure or yeah 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 I know that but get, get to the good part don't think that that you're just sort of neutral if you're not hearing the gospel and feeling moved to address it deal with the claims examine your heart wonder you are playing with eternity. You cannot fool God with a little bit of church attendance and a, a little bit of obedience here and there just to kind of kind of sort of play along so that the community thinks that everything's fine and you're fine. God sees into our hearts and he will not be fooled. Jesus says, you've got to deal with me. Let, me. let me ask you, let me, this is the part where I got scared. I didn't know, should I do this? I'm going to do it. Raise your hand if you think people will die this year. Pretty easy to answer, right? Raise your hand if you think it might be you. Any single one of us can die. Four years ago, my mother was walking down the hallway of her house getting ready for church. Boom, a bomb went off in her brain. And she crumpled to the floor, and five days later, she was dead. That can happen to any single one of us. I read a story this week about a young couple who got married and had a beautiful life, and within two years, the wife got this crazy disease where she became allergic to virtually everything, including her husband. And now she lives in absolute isolation on the top floor of their house and she can have no contact with any human being. She's not dead yet. But her life went from here to what we would call here in an instant. Now I am not trying to scare you into believing. I'm trying to scare you out of complacency. And there's a difference between those two things. I need this myself. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the day we live in with all its lights and buzzers and distractions going off. I don't know if the Holy Spirit is holding back and not pounding us the way he, he should. I don't know if it's because we live in an era where, where we have modern medicine that seems to keep us alive just for so long and people in the past were just more familiar and comfortable with mortality and death and understood that it was around any corner. But my point is this, friends. The Bible says that every single one of us, when we die, we will be called to give an account to Jesus. Romans 14, verse 12. Every single one of us. No one escapes that. Facing Jesus and giving an account. 
And so we got to deal with this. And, and I'm so concerned that we're not dealing with this. And I'm praying so hard that some of us who maybe have not dealt with this and are being stirred, that they need to deal with this. We, we have a prayer ministry. We're going to start having prayer ministry after church on Sundays for those of us who need prayer. People will be wearing a lanyard so you can identify who they are. They'll be right here. This week it'll be Andy and Kathy. And I just encourage you, if you have been shocked out of your complacency even a little bit, don't leave today without facing that, dealing with that, addressing that. Talk to Kathy and Andy. They'll take you into the hallway or into the other room and they'll pray with you if you would like. But listen, if you walk out and you go, that was heavy. Give me the wig. I'm all wigged out by that. And you just go back on your day. You are giving a response. Don't think you're not. Okay. We got to come out. So let's go out. Let's go back up. We're in the valley. We're climbing out of the valley. We can get out of the valley really quick because look at what happened. These people cried out. What must I do? They were cut to the quick. Look at verse uh, da, 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 37. They were cut to the heart. This pierced them. This, this, this affected them. And so they said, what must we do? And, and here's the wonderful thing. The gospel spread because even though it tells us the truth about ourselves and it calls for a response, it offers hope each and every time. I've just told you, yes, you are a wicked, wicked sinner deserving of God's judgment and you'll have to meet with God at the end of time at some point and have to, to deal with him. But that's not the end of the story. That's only half the gospel. The other half of the gospel is that, that your judgment need not be one that you face in fear, but you can face it in joy because God has done something about your sin. They say, what must we do? And look at Peter and his response. It says in verse 38, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Jesus is here this morning right now with his arms open, not looking at you and, and scowling at you and saying, I'm gonna get you and you better submit, sucker, or you're gonna pay He's looking at you with his arms open, with holes in his hands, reminding you that he died in your place on the cross. And he's saying, I'm calling you, I'm calling you, I'm calling you. Come fall into my loving arms now. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to clean yourself up, dress yourself up, make yourself worthwhile. Just come. He's calling. Repent. It's unbelievable. The gospel always offers hope, and it's offering hope right now. Kids, it's offering it to you right now. Maybe you, growing up in mom and dad's house, have never really wrestled with it. The clocks tick our hearts. Okay, every one of us, we have a wind-up clock for our heart. I don't know if I said this last week or what, but we are a closer, we are now an hour closer to eternity than we were when I started preaching. Almost an hour, sorry. Not that bad. Okay, when we started the service, it's, you know what I'm saying. We're, we're getting closer. Every moment, we're getting closer. 
because we all have wind-up clocks for hearts. We don't have perpetual clocks for hearts. And eventually that clock runs out and eternity starts for us. And here is Jesus saying, just come to me. Just come to me. This is for you. I did this for you. I did this for your kids. I did this for anyone who is simply willing to repent, simply willing to say, it's true. I'm not who I should be. And you took care of it all for me. I give myself to you. That's it. I know it sounds too easy to some of you. But it's true. Repent. Be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father, this message is what is what this message is what swept through the world and continues to sweep, sweep through the world when re- understood properly it is the most hopeful message in the world help us to believe it help us to engage it help us to share it we live in a a world that is lost and perishing. But we have a Lord who stands with his arms wide open saying, come to me. I'm calling. May we call with him and may we certainly answer that call ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.